to the Caspian Podcast, the podcast with the Caspian Post, with me, Mark Elliott. Hello and welcome to the next podcast on Caspian Post. With me today is Ian Peart, one of my oldest friends from Azerbaijan. He's been in Baku since 2000, over 20 years, and he has often called himself the happiest man in Azerbaijan. Uh, why would you say that was, Ian? Well, the uh, key goes back to 2003, and actually before that, because in, uh, in 2000, by, uh, by the wonders of the Azerbaijani telephone system, I got a wrong phone call. And, well, actually, I got many wrong phone calls. <laughs> this one, this one, uh, the voice on the end said uh, that she was studying uh, English literature. And I said, well, literature is my main interest. And I said, so what about Azerbaijani literature? Are you, uh, you know, are you well up on that? And she said, yes. So I thought, okay, I'll meet this one. So on uh, July the 8th at five o'clock, outside McDonald's, that ancient uh, historical <laughs> monument in the center of Baku, we met. And... Uh, Finally, 2003, in Sadet Sarai, Sadet means happiness, the happiness palace. My wife's name is Sadet, so that's why I'm the happiest man in Azerbaijan. I'm actually amazed that there was a McDonald's there in 2000. I mean, what are your memories of, of Baku back there and how much have they changed to the Baku you're living in now? Well, my memories of Baku are a much lower Baku. Yes, quite literally. <laughs> I do remember a couple of uh, high-rise buildings, but generally it was much lower. But now you, yeah. came as a, you came as a teacher, but then you went on to edit one of the most uh, useful and wide-ranging magazines in the country, Visions of Azerbaijan. Um, that's, that's quite a change. But how, how difficult was it to, be, to become as deeply embedded in the, the culture as you have been? I, I mean, I know, I remember when you went, when it was your 60th birthday, pretty much the whole glitterati of the Azerbaijani music scene were there. Um, how hard was that for you? Not, not hard at all. And that's one of the great things about uh, Azerbaijan it's, and Baku. It's so easy to get anything that interests you you can get there. And it's, uh, you know, as you say, the 60th birthday was uh, basically a jazz event. And I was interested in jazz and I got interested in the local uh, Mugan music. At first, I couldn't understand the Mugan music. It was, you know, it was too strange, too, I couldn't mm -hmm. get it. And uh, Sadet, my wife says, you have to hear it live. So we went to a concert, Alim Gasimov, and I didn't understand a single word, and I was transported. It was just wonderful. The whole packed, you know, a big auditorium packed, and just everybody was carried away. It was one of, it's actually the only concert I remember where there was not a mobile phone going. <laughs> well, it was a bit earlier. Well, I, actually, I seem to remember Azerbaijanis had mobile phones way before anyone at home. I, th I think they skipped the landline. <laughs> but, I mean, to see Alan Gasimov as one of, like, as early as you did, I mean, that's quite a privilege. 
how you, I suppose, did Sardet sort of have a lot of contacts? Uh, well, that, that's a story, and that kind of is partly how I moved from teaching to uh, the magazine. Because after that concert, I said to Sardet, I want to meet that guy. I really, I, what is it? What is it? So she found out that Alim's wife was like his manager. Got the phone call, got the call. Yeah, well, come around next week. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine? I mean, you know, Alim Gasimov is like a superstar in Azerbaijani terms. Yeah. I, I just think, you know. How it's sort of like I... calling Elvis, isn't it? And saying, do you mind yeah. if I meet? Yeah. And they say, okay, come round. Yeah. And then, you know, we went round and I was still nervous, you know, being English, thinking, God, he's going to need a big interview fee. It's <laughs> just ridiculous, you know. We sit down. I ask him a question. He says, oh, no, no, no we're going to eat first. That's, that, that is very Azerbaijani. So, so was, this, was this at his house? Yes, yeah, yeah. Oh, my goodness. What, what a fabulous story. And at the end of the meal, again, I was being nervous. So I asked him, like, an interview question. Oh, no, no. Let's play some music. So we went to his rehearsal room. He picked up a sass, which I didn't know he played because he's a singer. Mm. His granddaughter came in and they serenaded us for another hour or so. Then question, oh, no, we need tea now. So we had tea. Okay, what's your question? Just glorious. Yeah, that... It's so easy. I, mean, I, I do think this this is one of the sides of, of the whole of the, the, the Caspian region that, that often gets overlooked. We, we, we tend to talk too much about the, the geopolitics or the oil. And, and, and I think this side of the uh, of the hospitality. I mean, do you remember Tahir, the, 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 the painter, where we went round to his house studio? Yes. yes. And again, one of the greatest um, artists of Azerbaijan sort of like walking into Picasso's house and, and he said, oh, well, while you're here, why don't you come up to my private apartment and have a look around? And there he had yet more of his fabulous works to, to on show. Yeah, and that's, that's the kind of contrast that you were talking about because he was a secretary of the Artists' Union of the Soviet Union for 19 years. Mm. So you have this... Of the whole Soviet Union? Uh, yes, 19 Lord. years. The Artists' Union, the Soviet Union. And you imagine, you know, when you talk about like that in the West to somebody in the West, they imagine, you know, Brezhnev or yes. something like that. And, yes. you know, you couldn't imagine a friendlier, more open, encouraging. I, I went back to him another time. I could hardly get him to talk about his art. He was keen to tell me about this young artist that he was, you know, helping. Yeah. Yeah, such a great sort of big-hearted spirit in the whole region, isn't it? um, Now, unfortunately, I am going to to talk something about a little bit darker because I know that um, after you'd been at the magazine for some while, you then wrote a book and um, travelled a lot with the Endless Corridor film launch, which was to talk about the, the Khojali massacre, where... Well, I, I know it's it's always said to be 613 um, Azerbaijanis were massacred on the 26th of February 1992. Have I got the date right? That's right. That's right. Um, 
but I, and I know you then um, traveled with this very, very powerful um, film around Europe, sort of trying to give people a little bit of the background and you, you, you wrote a book about it too. Um, but let's, I, I think one of the things that really, you, you really impressed on me was just how powerful the, the personal stories are of, of, of those that you've met. And, and then you've done another film recently yourself, um, what was that called? A grief of a nation, something like that. Yes, yes. So, can you just give us a little insight to 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 what you've learned from it, and, and some of those stories, perhaps, that you could share with people? Well, you know, we first of all we were working on a magazine, and um, you know, every year Azerbaijanis commemorate this uh, massacre. I suppose um, we need to actually just in, for people who don't know. Uh, point out that this was during the the first Karabakh war um, between yeah. Armenia and Azerbaijan and and so can you just give people an idea where Hojali was and why it was important? Yeah the, well the basic story was Hojali was right in the center of the, the region that Armenia was claiming and it also had the only airport in the region and the main railway line and the main highway. It was a connecting. And um, the, the area, most of the population at that time were Armenians. Um, you know, there are a good section of Azerbaijanis, but again, th without going through the long history where the Russians had actually brought Armenians into the area, Bujali um, gradually found itself surrounded by the advancing Armenian military. And one night, uh, it was obvious that their turn had come. They were going to be occupied. And the defenders of the town, such as they were, with their hunting rifles and stuff, realized they weren't going to be able to do much against tanks. Yeah. And they told everybody to, to go. The whole civilian population, go. And they had to try to aim for a city called Agdam. To do this, they had to cross way through a river in February, snow on the ground, Gracious. climb up through a forested mountain, travel through the forest through the night, and as dawn broke, they came out onto level uh, flatland, open land, to be met by a hail of bullets by the Armenians who were lying in wait. The Armenians had actually channeled them that way. It was the only way they could go. And just a wholesale massacre. And that was it. And so you, you as, as part of the, the second film that you were involved with, from what I can tell you, you were talking to some of the relatives of those who perished and getting some of the stories more firsthand. You looked into you know, in, in a depth, I think, which hadn't necessarily been public so much. Um, you know, what, what did you discover? Well, you know, it's the... You're right that to understand these things, you can talk about the politics, you can talk about the facts, the historical events, mm. but until you understand the humanity of it, you have no understanding of it. Yeah. And when we first... First of all, um, we wanted to write an article for the magazine. It was just to 
interview people for the magazine. We went to uh, a ramshackle former sanatorium on the Caspian coast where the survivors were living. Really ramshackle place. Mm. And we interviewed them in, in their homes. And the one I particularly remember, which I came back to in the film later, was uh, a woman called Yasemin. And, you know, my Azerbaijani was not good enough. We had local uh, interpreters. And as Yasemin told her story, I could see the tears coming down the interpreter's face. And we had to give her two, three, four minutes before she could translate and tell us what the story was. And basically the story was that Yasemin's father was one of those defenders. He went out to try and do what he could to hold up the Armenians to let other people escape. Uh, his wife, her mother, refused to leave without him. So Yasemin was actually taken by, Yasemin was 12 at the time, 12 years old. She was taken by an uncle and they went and miraculously they got through. Um, a few weeks later, there was a body exchange and it turned out that they, they dug her father's body from under the snow and the Armenians exchanged it apparently for so many litres of gasoline. She never knew what happened to her mother until, if I remember right, it was 12 years later. There was um, a documentary on Azerbaijani television that showed photographs taken by a Russian woman photographer who'd been with the Armenians. And one of the photos Yasemin recognised the body of her mother. Well, that, near that, 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 her is, that is... That and, is and she said, her comment then was, I never could imagine that anyone would be grateful that her mother was dead and not taken by the Armenians. Yeah, that that's... No, that's powerful and horrifying isn't it and, but uh, you know it, it's it's those as you say it's those personal affecting stories that it, it really supposes the postscript to that mark sorry sorry yeah yeah yasemin now is a teacher okay she, she teaches uh refugee idp children in a, their own school and i asked her then so what do you tell them about Hojali? And what kind of answer would you expect? Well, I, you know, I had an expectation what she was going to say, and she didn't say that. She said, I tell them how beautiful Hojali was. If only, yes, if only, because if, I, I, one of the things I feel so strongly is that at some point, the the cycle of the hatred has to end, and uh, I, and one of the things I'm wondering, I, I mean, I, it's it's relatively soon after the second war where where Kujali has returned to Azerbaijani, 
control. Uh, Maybe too soon to to know how the survivors or the survivors' relatives feel. But, you know, I imagine there is some hope that that beauty will now return to the original uh, inhabitants or that they will return to it, I should say. Yes. And to be to be honest here, you know, we every every country has its ups and downs and you can criticize the politics and all the rest. But one thing is, since the war, I've been impressed by the focus that has been on restoring the uh, liberated areas. And they've started building the infrastructure, clearing the mines, but they have the plans to, big plans to develop the culture. And they're already planning uh, the area as a as a culture center and as a tourism center. Well, that's so they're slip. looking very positively about rebuild. Well, I mean that that's the sort of message. I, I it's, it'd be very nice to hear that. It's, let's hope that can be. And while we're on the positive message, since we've only got a couple of minutes left, I just wanted to hear any other. Um, inspirations and, and future plans you might have. I, I, I gather you'd come across a very interesting project for a possible future um, oh, translation. Well, I know it's perhaps a little secret. But <laughs> well, I'll, um, it's very early stages, but, and this again has some, you know, there are parts of Azerbaijan that still have to develop. They're in the early, they're still in the early years of independence. And one of those is the development of, amongst other things, is the development of how you present history and what are the priorities. And one of these that has particularly affected me, and I'll tell you a story which you know may be construed as being negative, but I think it's positive, is Natavan. Natavan was uh, the daughter of the last Khan of Karabakh, which was the occupied area. And she was a poet and a general benefactor. I mean, she's well off, but general benefactor. But the story that goes around here is that when she was in Baku and not in Shusha, her hometown in Karabakh, she met Alexander Dumas, who wrote Three Musketeers, who was touring the region. And the story, big story here, is that she played him at chess. And of course she beat him. Well, you know, I had my doubts about this story. And I don't think it's true. I read Dumas' account of his visit. There's nothing there. And I thought, but, and then I read that Natavan had also organized uh, what they call majlis, like uh, assemblies cultural assemblies in Shusha, in Karabakh. This is in the 19th century. And and she had mixed assemblies of poets and musicians, like men and women, you know, which for that time was fairly uh, not that common. And that's what I was more interested in. And I was thinking, where where is the evidence for this? Where is the concentration on this? Never mind one chess game, for which there's no evidence that I've seen. What about this? And then, this is a, a book, and it's, uh, sorry, I hope we got time. 
But this connects too because one of the great younger jazz pianists in Azerbaijan is Shahin Navrasli. Brilliant, wonderful pianist who combines local music with jazz. And he wrote on uh, Facebook about two weeks ago, he showed a picture of him, his father and grandfather by the grave of his great-grandfather in Shusha. And he said his great-grandfather was a poet who attended the assemblies run by Natava. Wow! wow. Oh. <laughs> you know, the lights went up in my head. <laughs> so, you know, I've interviewed Shane a few times and done a few things for him. So I thought, okay. <laughs> so I called him and said, Shaheen, do you have more information? He and gave the me is there. the book that his father has written about their family. It's not written for public, you know, it's not on sale. It's, a, it's quite a tradition here that someone writes a book about their family, the family line. I see. It's in Azerbaijani. I've got a friendly publisher here that I've shown it to. And he was kind of, hmm, hmm, hmm. And I said, well, can you translate a bit of it for me? And that was the next hour. And he was, so this is my mission. <laughs> well, I know you, Ian. Um, mission after mission, you, 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 you continue to surprise me with, with the, the gems that you find. And, and I, I suppose one of the... Again is the stories. Every day there is a story, a new story. It's just... Wonderful. As we said 20, 20 years ago, um, the stories will come to us if we if we are just open to them. And and um, I think both of us have gained so much from from the whole um, delight of the hospitality of the Caucasus and the stories that they provide. Uh, I wish we could go on all evening, Ian, but uh, I just wanted to thank you so much for joining us tonight. And uh, um, maybe we'll get another one of these a little bit further down the road. But uh, thanks very much indeed. It was a pleasure, Mark. Thank you.